Hello, and welcome back to Galamafri. Thanks to everyone who turned tuned in last week, and thank you to everyone who gave feedback. I was just going to say that was so many people. It's so awesome to see how many people like your podcast. Our podcast. Let's be socialists. Our podcast. We have a Patreon now for those who want to support our efforts. Uh, Patreon.com slash Galamafricast. So this episode is a little bit late, in part because we've been trying to figure out what we actually want to do with this podcast. I had intended to do a much more elaborate episode on a more complex topic, but unfortunately, it was not ready in time. And so I present to you, honorable listeners, yet another story episode. This one has a significantly lower body count. Lanny, be honest. Uh, (laughs) You only didn't want to do the other one because it was French. That was a major part of it, yes. <laughs> my my cancellation of French culture will have to be delayed for another week, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, let's jump into it. Okay. Let me set a stage for you. The year is 1987. Rick Astley releases his classic single, Never Gonna Give You Up. Konami releases Contra and Metal Gear on home consoles. Three oh, Men shit. and a Baby earns $167 million at the box office, and the entire planet is on the verge of nuclear war. This is the final peak of the Cold War, the decades-long nuclear standoff between the U.S. and the USSR. President Reagan and Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev had met in Reykjavik the previous October to discuss nuclear arms control, but talks had fallen apart at the last minute. Gorbachev had promised reforms to the Soviet system, including democratization, economic liberalization, and thawing attentions to the West, So to many across Europe, the failure of Reykjavik to come to a meaningful compromise was disappointing, to say the least. But one teenager acted on that disappointment in a way that nobody else did. And his name was Matthias Rust. He was born... Oh, what a name. Matthias Rust. He was born in June 1968 outside of Hamburg in Germany, making him at the time of this incident... Uh, 18 years old. He was also an amateur pilot and a member of a flying club in Hamburg, Germany. He was obsessed with the concept of a nuclear war. He was you know, young. He was spooked out by the whole concept that suddenly, because of some old guys, some old boomers up in Moscow and Washington, uh, I could just explode one day. So he, he didn't like it. He didn't like it. You don't like the concept of nuclear war. That's fair. Yeah. You had a hot take there. (laughs) He believed that nuclear war war was not inevitable, but the planet had been brought to the brink of war by the stubbornness of the leaders of the superpowers, as shown by the failures of the Reykjavik. He believed that Gorbachev was sincere in his attempts to reform the Soviet Union, but Reagan was too harsh on communism and didn't believe Gorbachev wanted reform at all. And Gorbachev, for his part, didn't want to compromise with Reagan in, in, in the risk of weakening his own power at home. All it would take to end this stubborn tie was a demonstration of how connected the world really was beyond, between the two sides of the Iron Curtain, some grand display of unity. And Rust had an idea of what that display could be. In the spring of 1987, he came up with his plan. He would borrow a plane 
from his flying club and fly from Hamburg to Moscow, landing in Red Square. He even wrote up a 20th-page manifesto to prevent Gorbachev, which he hoped would convince the premier to destroy his nuclear weapons and make amends with the United States. And once he had landed safety, it it would show Reagan that Gorbachev's intentions were peaceful, and the president would also be able to make amends. It was a perfect plan. Or was it? So the Soviet airspace was very well developed in 1987. There were multiple layers of interception points, surface-to-air missiles, and overlapping radar systems. The airspace restrictions were ruthlessly enforced. Just 40 years before Rust's flight, a Soviet plane had shot down a Korean airliner, killing 269 passengers, including a sitting U.S. congressman. The same thing had happened in 1978 to a different Korean airliner, though in that case there were only uh, two fatalities. Then, this is... Very different, but I do want to tell a story because it is uh, an insane story. In 1981, a Scottish arms dealer who was supplying uh, Iran during the Iran-Iraq war was smuggling, coming back from a successful mission in Iran and accidentally flew off course over Soviet airspace. And so the Soviets sent a pilot out to stop him, but something went wrong with a weapon system. And so rather than let this guy escape, the Soviet pilot flew his plane into the arms dealer's plane, blowing them both up. Uh-oh. So, so that's that's the level of we don't want you in our airspace the Soviets have. Rust. Yeah. <laughs> Rust, I don't think this is a good idea, Rusty. He said uh, he thought he had about a 50-50 chance of making it. 50-50 chance you get blown up in the sky. 50-50 chance you, you, you make it. Would you take those odds? Those world are peace. not good odds. But These Buffy, are very bad odds. But Buffy, world peace. Think about it. Is Think it worth the it. risk? Russ thought it was. So, on May 13th, 1987, Russ took off from Hamburg, Hamburg aboard a borrowed Cessna 172. So, instead of going east, though, he went west. And on May 15th, he arrives in Reykjavik, the site of the failed disarmament conference. He visited the site of negotiations and said that he was inspired by the spirit of the house to continue on his suicide mission. Interesting. He spends a week in Iceland and then sets off again, this time for Finland. After spending some time in Scandinavia, he's ready to go. On May 28th, the afternoon of May 28th, he begins. He tells the air traffic in Helsinki that he's going west towards Stockholm, but as soon as he's in the air, he changes directions, hangs or left or right, I'm not sure how planes work, goes east. And the moment he does this, he turns off his radio, so they can't talk him down. Air traffic in Helsinki desperately tries to make contact, but it's no use. Initially, they think that he had crashed somewhere in the Gulf of Finland, so they send out a search party to investigate. I mean, what, what's That's the other fair. explanation? That he's going into the most heavily guarded airspace on Earth with his radio off, or that he just crashed. What do you, what do you think is more likely there? Yeah, yeah, so, that's fair. But before the search party had even left, Rust had already been spotted by the Soviets. An Air Force base in Estonia, sends out two jets. Sends out. He told him, but he wouldn't listen. He's he's just young, 
dumb and full of German energy. Yeah. And he, he, I'm he sorry, loves, go on. He's a plane boy. Can't stop him. He was born to fly. Anyway, and it's here that rest, uh, as they say, rolls a D20. The, the afternoon was cloudy, and the Soviet pilot can't see his plane clearly. Instead of seeing the Cessna, he thinks it's a different plane, a Soviet plane. And so he assumes that this guy is another Soviet. There's probably been some error with his radio, so why shoot him down? There's probably been some mistake. You know, why would he do this on purpose? Who, who would, why would some... Who would Westerner, be that dumb? Who would be so dumb as to fly into Soviet airspace unless you have a good reason and permission? So the pilot breaks off and returns the base. So Rusty... I cannot believe my man Rusty uh, has not been detected yet. Well, he's been detected. They just don't care. Well, <laughs> has been able to get this far. So at this point, Rust drops off the radar, literally. He, he flies down right up close to the ground. He may have actually stopped for a quick break on Soviet territory before flying up again. He stopped to take a leak. He stopped to take a leak and change his clothes. But pretty soon, he's back in the air, back on radar, and he gets noticed again. A second Russian jet, this time a MiG, a MiG-23, which are like the state-of-the-art at this time military fighter jets. They can travel at the speed of sound. They have missiles. They have guns. They have bombs. They, they, they're the big deal. They're, they're big time. And so this jet pulls up behind him and tries to make contact. Hey, what are you doing? You're, you're not one of us. What are you doing here? But again, his radio is off. The jet follows him for a minute and then pulls away. It's still not clear what happened, but it seems like the pilot told the commanding officer that there's a German plane flying here in the middle of the Soviet Union, going right towards Moscow. But the officer thought he was making it up as a joke. He, he, was, he was just doing a bit. <laughs> he was doing a bit. Fucking Gary. Yeah. And didn't and told him, all right, back off, come on, it's over. You you've been saying that for a minute, time to come home. And so the MIG pulls back, goes back to base. They see him on the radar, but the commanding officer mistakes the Cessna, which is a tiny plane. It's like a four-seater, single engine, fixed swing kind of thing. Mistakes. Is it. my man Rusty about to to go two for two? <laughs> He's about to go for two for two because they see him on the radar, but the commanding officer thinks he's a large flight of geese. So he keeps going. Amazing. Okay, so the last two outposts he encountered were like little bases. Like I said, it's a large and sophisticated network, and those were, you know, two fairly minor outposts. Now he's going through an actual major Air Force base. Like a, a serious Air Force Center. And on that day, they were in the middle of a training exercise with training rookies in the use of IFF, Identify Friend and Foe, which is how the so which is how planes determine friend from enemy. So when the commander here saw Rust flying through on an unmarked plane, he thought, ah, another of these noobs 
Uh, probably just forgot to turn it on. All right, don't shoot him down. Let's just let him pass. He, he's he's young. He'll he'll learn out of it. So he thought he was just a rookie who didn't know how it worked, and uh, let him pass. You're fucking kidding me. This man is three for three at not getting detected in the most harsh uh, uh, military base yeah. of its time. And they just think he's some dumb rookie. <coughs> so. That's amazing. He is now in Russia, deep in the heart of Russia, and now about 40 miles outside of Moscow when he comes across the fourth base where the previous day there was some sort of crash or accident. It's not clear from the sources I have. And they have a bunch of planes and helicopters out of the air search doing a search and rescue mission for these lo- this lost pilot. And the commander of this base thinks, oh, this is some civilian who's just trying to help us out. Let him pass. He's probably, you know, he's doing good work. Oh my God. He is now... Four for four. Four for four. Can we keep going? He is now in Moscow. He can see Red Square beneath him, but he has no idea where to land because he can't exactly ask for clearance. He read an old map of Moscow, but things had changed. There were new buildings up. There had been roads that had been changed, new bridges, things like that. And so he just kind of circles around overhead for a few minutes just looking for a place to land. He originally wanted to land in the Kremlin, but he eventually decided, nah, if, if they do that, they'll just kill me in the Kremlin and uh, cover it all up. So he decides to land in Red Square itself. The square itself is a little too crowded, so he lands on a bridge outside. The bridge was usually covered by a trolley wire, which would have disrupted his flight possibly to the extent of destroying his plane and killing him. But on this day, the trolley wire had been taken down for maintenance to be put up the next morning. (laughs) This man keeps lucking out. This is his fifth D20 roll. And now, (laughs) it is now 6.43 in the evening. He left Helsinki five hours ago, and now he is standing outside of a plane in Red Square, waiting to be arrested. The first people who come up aren't the KGB. They're tourists and various Muscovites. They ask for pictures and autographs. When they hear he's from Germany, they think he's from East Germany. But when he he tells them he's from the West, they're like, what? How? What are you doing here? This is... You flew here from West Germany across the route. Deliberately, on purpose, across the route, that we have people watching 24-7 because there are people coming from West Germany who might try to be nuking us. And they just let you go right here to literally the heart of Russia. This is Red Square. This is the the, the heartland of... They are baffled. They cannot believe this. And neither can the KGB, because they take two hours to show up. He is standing around signing autographs and posing for pictures outside his illegally flown in German plane. 
He's being an influencer. He's influencing for two hours before the KGB show up. So when they do show up, he is arrested and interrogated, but they cannot believe it either. I was like, can they even be mad? Like, the first assumption is, of course, that he's a spy. Second assumption is that he wanted to be shot down and was trying to make himself a martyr for, like, the West to justify anti-Soviet propaganda. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, okay, who set you up to this? Who told you to do this? And he's just like, I, I did it. I don't know. I, I have this manifesto. It's 20 pages long. I want to give it to Gorbachev. Can you give it to Gorbachev for me? And they just, no, no. <laughs> who are you? Who are you? And it just goes on like that for a couple months. And eventually they just decide to put him on trial. And That's in fair. September, he is convicted of illegally entering the Soviet Union, violating air traffic laws, and malicious hooliganism. And he is sentenced <laughs> to four years in prison. Malicious hooliganism? Malicious crime? He pled guilty to the first two counts, denied the third count, made him made the Soviets take him to trial for hooliganism because he was not going to confess to being Unless a hooligan. He was being a little scamp. He was, try- he was bringing world peace. He was not a hooligan. He was just being a little scam. He just scampered his way into the most uh, heavily protected city on Earth. In he was just being a, a little guy. He was just being a little guy. He he snuck in. He that's on them. That's a, their problem. It's true. You really let this like child <laughs> sneak into the country. He is. He, he has just graduated from high school. He get. He's he baby. Has, he is a baby. And you let him in a single-engine plane, quite in a single-engine plane, just fly in. He had, I think, fifty hours of experience flying before this. He didn't even have his full hours. I think you have to have more than fifty hours. Yeah, yeah he was technically not licensed, I do believe. But I mean, that's a problem for the Germans, but. <laughs> Well, did his plan work? In December of 1987, uh, what is this now? Seven months after his flight, Gorbachev and Reagan meet again. This time, this time they actually come to an agreement to reduce their stockpile of nuclear cruise missiles. And as a show of goodwill towards the West, Gorbachev pardons Rust. And he is sent back to Germany in August. He had a fun vacation in Russia. He had a nice little flight, and they paid for his room and board for almost a full year. Holy shit. You know, you, you gotta you gotta dream big. You gotta you gotta strive. You gotta you gotta hustle. Say what you will uh, about Rusty, he was a hustler. It's true. So as we've been saying, and as you can imagine. This was a disaster, the Soviet system. Gorbachev had been attempting to reform the system, but he had been blocked by conservative elements within the military, especially. And this debacle gave him the perfect opportunity to just purge them all. He fired the head of the armed forces. He hired the, he fired the uh, head of the air defense. He fired basically every officer who let him go 
you're out. You are gone. Everyone, I mean, yeah. that makes sense. Everyone who supported them, gone. Everyone who could have stopped him and didn't, just gone. So he, this is the largest purge of the Soviet military since Stalin. Holy shit. He fires hundreds of officers. And, and coincidentally, it also happens that a bunch of them personally opposed him and his policies and his reforms, but, you know. Okay. So, so it's not entirely the fight, but it, 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 this right. gives him the excuse he's been wanting. Because I Soviet see. propaganda had specifically portrayed their country as impenetrable. Our Air Force is invincible. Our army is unstoppable. No steppy. You cannot step on this snake. And now, a teenager. I cannot stress this enough. A high schooler flies in. This she's he feeling is, silly. He is living the life of an anime protagonist. He has a luck of ten. He rolled five d20s in a row, and now he is an icon. So, I do want to finish this story by telling you what happened to Rust after the flight in 1988. He returned home and got a job at a hospital where he got a crush on one of the other uh, volunteers at the hospital, a young nurse. But uh, she turned him down and he uh, he stabbed Ow. her. He is found guilty of attempted murder and given two and a half years in prison on the grounds that he is seriously mentally ill. About a month after the stabbing, while free, free on appeal, he flies again, this time to Reno, marrying a Polish woman who he had apparently just met. Uh, it, Wait, Reno? Like... Like it in Nevada, yes. In Nevada? He goes to Nevada and he hooks up with this Polish woman, Polish-American woman, and marries her. Men will literally fly a plane to Nevada before going to therapy. That is That is the moral of the story. Men will fly a plane into the Soviet Union before going to therapy. Absolutely. So he, he married a woman in, in Nevada in a, over the course of a couple of days. Does it surprise you to learn that it doesn't work out? Rust is actually pretty private about his personal life, but eventually, you know, from time to time, he does pop up into the news again and again. Like in 1996, he converted to Hinduism and married the daughter of a wealthy Indian tea merchant. Apparently, he also got really into yoga. Interesting. In, in 2001, he is arrested for shoplifting a pillow. A single pillow. A single pillow? He tries to just steal a pillow, and he gets arrested and forced to pay a fine. Then in 2005, he gets arrested again. Uh, at some point, I'm not exactly clear on this, he starts a company, a meditation company for Palestine. Like, his new goal is to make peace between Israel and Palestine because he single-handedly ended the Cold War. Of course. And he does this by going to Palestine and meditating. <laughs> so that's his side gig. This guy. In 2005, he gets arrested for fraud. It's not exactly clear what kind. He just gets arrested again. And the last we heard about him was in 2015, he was working as an investment banker in Switzerland. And had a side hustle of owning a yoga studio in Hamburg. He huh. 
and the plane he used, the Cessna 172, is now on display in the German Museum of Technology in Berlin. So that's the end of that story. Closing thoughts? Wow. Um, wow, I wish that I could have the luck that he did uh, when it came to rolling. Uh, my rolls are shit when it comes to, uh, what is that, a, uh, a stealth check? Yeah, he he did just spec into stealth and got really lucky. I think the moral of the story is don't give up. Don't give up on your dreams. Aim for the stars. If you miss, you will land in Moscow. 100%. The main source for today's episode was The Notorious Flight of Matthias Rust, written by Tom Lecompte and published in Smithsonian Magazine. I want to say thank you to everyone who is still listening, and I will see you next time. See ya.